Mark's Gospel, beginning at chapter 1. And we're going to read, uh, just for context reasons, we'll read down to verse 19, the end of verse 19. So Mark 1, beginning of verse 1, I'm reading from a New American Standard Bible, and it says this, The beginning of the Gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger ahead of you, who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Make ready the way of the Lord, make his path straight. John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea was going out to him, and all the people of Jerusalem. And they were being baptized by him in the Jordan River for confessing their sins. And John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist, and his diet was locusts and wild honey. And he was preaching and saying, After me one is coming who is mightier than I, and I am not fit to stoop down and untie the thong of his sandals. I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. And in those days Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. Immediately coming up out of the water, he saw the heavens opening and the Spirit like a dove descending upon him. And a voice came out of the heavens, You are my beloved Son, in you I am well pleased. Immediately the Spirit impelled him or drove him to go out into the wilderness. And he was in the wilderness forty days, being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild beasts, and the angels were ministering to him. Now after John had been taken into custody, Jesus came into Galilee preaching the gospel of God and saying, The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. As he was going along by the sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net in the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, Follow me, and I will make you become fishers of men. Immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on a little further, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who was also in the boat, mending the nets. Immediately he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and went away to follow him. Let's again ask for God for his blessing. Father, this morning as we come before your word and we open it together, Father, we pray that the Spirit of God would teach us and lead us into all truth. And Father, we remember those two Greek men that came to some of the disciples and said, Sirs, we would see Jesus. And Father, this is our desire, as not only this morning as we go through Mark, but also for the whole series, Lord, we want to see Jesus. We want to get to know Him afresh, learn new things about Him, enjoy Him and delight Him in Him and worship Him. But Father, too, we want to be a people who are living in obedience and submission to the Lord and and Savior of our lives, the Lord Jesus Christ. And we ask you these things, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen. If you were asked to write the story, or the life story of one of the greatest people who ever lived, how much time or space would you invest? I looked up online, what's the longest biography ever written? Anyone want to take a guess at who it is about? Close. No, not Caesar. Not the Queen of England, but, but much closer. George Mueller is a great... There's lots of things written about George Mueller, but no, not George Mueller. He was uh, prime minister of one of the queen, the present Queen of England. Churchill. Churchill, yeah. Winston Churchill. 
24 volumes of life biography about Winston Churchill, averaging 750 to 100,000 words per volume. It reaches somewhere between 2 and 4 million words written about Winston Churchill. In my Bible, the pages given to Jesus are 185 pages. That's it. If you had to sit down and write everything you'd think about Jesus, what would you include and what would you leave out? In fact, John says if all the things that Jesus did and said were written down, the whole world could not contain the pages. And yet we are given this tiny little section. You know, there's more words in the Bible devoted to the life of David than there is to the life of the Lord Jesus. And what that means for us, there's an implication behind that. What it means is every single word that was chosen by the Holy Spirit and recorded about Jesus is very important because he had so much to choose from and yet he picked very carefully pieces of the story of Jesus Christ and record them for our benefit, for our learning, our instruction, and ultimately our salvation. So this is what we want to see this morning. We want to see Jesus and we want to realize that not everything that's been written down is his whole story, but very carefully selected elements and stories and narratives are put together to weave a story through. It's not a biography, by the way. A gospel is not a biography. What a gospel is, is a very specific story written with a point behind it that demands our response. It demands an activity. It demands Not a reaction, but a proper faith-filled response, an obedient response to what we're being told. Gospels are called hero narratives. And hero narratives are like narratives of great men of old, and they focus on one aspect or one action of that particular hero, and everything is centered around that. The book of Mark, for example, devotes over one-third of its time to the last week of Jesus' life before he's crucified. Well, one of my concerns for us, the church and the wider church in general, is that we've made the gospel all about us, right? It's what has God done for me? How does the gospel affect me? The gospel of Jesus Christ has become all about us as humans, but the gospel of Christ is all about Jesus Christ. Yeah, of course, it has to do with how, what it affects on me, right? I mean, of course, the gospel has to do an effect on me, but that's not the center point. And you actually pick that up in the very first words that Mark writes about Jesus. And we're just going to look at verse 1 today, and we're going to use it as a springboard to kind of take our way through the whole book in a go today. He says in 1 and verse 1, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. That's how John or Mark opens his gospel, and we can see that it's not totally taken up with us. And the way I want to begin to look at Mark is to be primarily taken up and engrossed in a look at the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Yeah, we will consider at the close how we should respond to that, but mostly I want us to see him and to savor him. And we're putting communion together so that we can kind of work our way directly out of this into remembering the Lord Jesus Christ, but focusing all of our thoughts on Jesus and Jesus alone. I have for the last week been repeatedly reading through the books, soaking myself in the text. I've avoided the commentaries and the dictionaries. I was sorely tempted to take one of those dictionaries off, one of those commentaries, and start looking up some information. But I decided what I would do is follow the example of George Mueller, as it turns out, who devoted himself in all of his preaching to just staying in the text. His entire library was a, was a collection of books 
all of them Bibles and a concordance. And that was how he preached. I thought, you know what? That's a great way to do it. Let's just stay with the text and focus on the text. And what I enjoyed as I was reading again and again and again, different themes and different ideas kept coming up. And one of the things I found so interesting and so engrossing was the fact that he used a whole bunch of different titles for Jesus throughout the book. In total, there are 10 titles for the Lord Jesus. And I won't look at all of them. We're going to look at them today, but we're just going to look at four major titles of Jesus. Now, the common assumption, the most common assumption about Mark is that, the, uh, that he is the author, although he never actually identifies himself as such throughout the whole book. Most people also assume that Mark, working in conjunction with Simon Peter, he was either recording Simon Peter's dictation, or he, after Simon Peter's death by martyrdom, John Mark wrote down using sermons and and letters and so on of Peter's as his source material. So the the gospel sort of comes through uh, Peter to Mark to us. And there's a reason why I bring that up. Peter, in his very first recorded sermon, gives... Excuse me. Peter, in his first recorded sermon, the book of Acts, gives us a key for how I want to study it today. It says this, in Acts 2, verse 22, Men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs which God performed through him in your midst, just as you yourselves know. And he goes on to talk about Jesus some more. That little word attested is what I want to focus on. Attested means displayed, exhibited. It's like the father showing off his son. And what I want to do today is use the opening line, the opening verse of the book of Mark as like a springboard to look at all the different titles or four major titles that Mark gives Jesus throughout the gospel. And as we unpack them, we're going to see and savor something of the Lord Jesus together. They say a change of perspective can do a world of good. So if you're struggling with the problems of life and living, I invite you this morning to lift your eyes up and behold the Lord Jesus, the servant king. And as we work our way through this, my prayer is that the Lord will draw worship from your heart and from my heart. But I want to notice four things this morning, four titles. Number one, Jesus Christ, the son of God. Number two, Jesus Christ, the Holy One of God. Number three, Jesus Christ, the Son of David. And Jesus Christ, fourthly, the Son of Man. So the Son of God, the Holy One of God, the Son of David, and the Son of Man. So first of all, right in Mark 1 and verse 1, he says, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. That's the highest of all the titles that is given to Christ. It's a title considered most blasphemous by the Pharisees and the scribes, the priests and the Jews. Jesus was equating himself with God. That's why they ultimately put him to death. They wanted to put him to death. The title claims equality with God. That title, without the truth behind it, makes us idolaters, worshiping something that is not the one true God of the Bible. It's the one claim which Jesus makes for himself as the ultimate game changer. Okay, if he is not the son of God, he cannot be sinless. If he is not sinless, then his death cannot atone for our sin, never mind his own. If he is not the son of God and sinless, then death has the same hold on him and resurrection based on his own merits is simply impossible. If he is not the son of God, then he is either a madman or the most deceitful of all men, effectively lying to millions of people. But he is. 
He is the Son of God. He is very God of very God. He is the eternally begotten Son proceeding from the Father. He's the brightness, the brightness of the glory of His Father. He's the image of the invisible God. Paul tells us in Colossians, whoever has seen Jesus has seen the Father. He has the glory that is the glory of the only begotten Son of God, full of grace and truth. That title that recognizes Him for who He truly is. Think of it this way. Jesus is a king, king of the Jews, king of Israel, king of kings. And there are lots of kings, but only one man is the son of God. There are many prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, all the Old Testament prophets. But there's only one man who is a prophet and the son of God. There have been many priests, literally thousands of priests down through the history of Israel's religion and hundreds and hundreds of high priests, but only one man is both a high priest and the Son of God. He is also the beloved Son of God. Notice what he says in verse 11. After Jesus' baptism, he comes up out of the water and a spirit descends upon him like a dove and a voice comes out of heavens, verse 11. You are my beloved Son. In you I am well pleased. Or in you I delight or I approve. He is the beloved Son of the Father. There's an exquisite beauty In the relationship of Christ to His Father, there's a love relationship of Father to Son. Remember the very first mention of love in the Bible is not man to woman or woman to child. It's from Father to Son. Abraham is out there in the wilderness or in Canaan and the Lord comes to him and says, Take now thy son, thine only son, whom thou lovest. And take him and offer him up on a place I'll show you. There is love between a father and son that's something very, very special. And the son of God is the beloved son of his father. There is love in the submission of the son to the father. There's love in the approval of the son by the father. And Peter, preaching at Pentecost, says God showed him off. He displayed him as the son of his love. Jesus Christ, the beloved Son of God, is displayed through the gospel as the one in whom the heart and soul of God the Father delights. You watch a, uh, a father with a son. Uh, when you see Pete and Luca, Amelie's, Pete just adores that little boy. And great big tall Pete and little tiny Luke, and they walk along and he's holding his hand. There's an incredible love. Look at uh, Dev with the little Amalia there. It's not a son, but it's the same thing. There's a tremendous love of a father for a child. And the father in heaven loves his son. He is the beloved son of the father. In uh, Mark 14, verse 61, it's, they say there, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed One? And again, it's relating the Father and the Son together as a relationship that's equal there. So Mark describes Jesus as the Son of God. So really, what you think about it is the Trinity, absolutely complete and in of itself, and Jesus who needed no brothers and sisters. If anybody ever tries to tell you, that God loved you so much because He needed someone else, He needed someone to talk to, or anything like that, that's blasphemy. It's wrong. It's completely wrong. God didn't need anybody to be complete, to make Himself complete. But what the beautiful thing is, that the Son delighted to include us, to make us His brothers and sisters. The Bible says that He is not ashamed to call us brothers. He is not ashamed to call us sisters. Those of us who have come to know the Lord Jesus Christ as the Son of God, the one who died to save us. And you know what? 
That isn't just good news. It's great news. It's great news that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. The gospel is that Jesus is a Son of God. It's not the gospel about Jesus, a Son of God. The gospel is that He's the Son of God simply for this reason. If He's not the Son of God, we've got no hope. Everything about our faith is just empty and void. He's just another Jewish carpenter who was crucified and there's no hope for us whatsoever. But the gospel is, the good news is that Jesus is the Son of God. Secondly, the gospel is also the good news about Jesus Christ, the Holy One of God. Look over in your Bibles to Mark and verse 24 of chapter 1. Just across the page should be. Actually, we'll read from verse uh, 23. It says that uh, Jesus in the synagogue in Capernaum, and it says, Just then there was a man in the synagogue with an unclean spirit, and he cried out, saying, What business do we have with each other, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Now that little phrase there, the Holy One, is a very clear reference. Anybody knows the Old Testament, the book of Isaiah, that refers back to Isaiah. Because over and over and over again, the book of Isaiah, he, God is called the Holy One of Israel. The suffering servant is called the Holy One of God. And Isaiah 40 to 66, which is the last half of the book, in case you didn't know this, Isaiah has 66 chapters. You can take the first 39 chapters, and they reflect and relate to the Old Testament. But uh, chapter 40 to chapter 66 the last 27 chapters of the Bible of Isaiah, sorry, relate to the New Testament. So there's 39 books in the Old Testament. There's 39 chapters of Isaiah relating to the Old Testament. There's 27 books in the New Testament. And the last 27 chapters of Isaiah relate to those New Testament books. It's kind of neat how it works out that way. But it's interesting that in the last 27 chapters of Isaiah, the term the Holy One of God comes up again and again and again. And when you look at all those terms and what Isaiah says about them, you can find out some amazing things that unpacks and helps us understand who Jesus is and what kind of person he is. For example, Isaiah 40, 25 says, There is none like the Holy One. There's no one else like him. The beauty of the fact that God is absolutely alone in his deity and his holiness. There's no one else like Jesus. He's not one amongst many. He's the only one. In Isaiah 41, verse 14, the Bible says, The Holy One of God is the Redeemer of His people. Well, those of us who have been redeemed, we are part of that company of God. Jesus Christ, the Holy One of God, purchased our, us from slavery to sin and death. We've been set free by Jesus, our Redeemer. In Isaiah 41, verse 16, he talks about the Holy One of God is the source of our rejoicing and our glory. Listen, pure Christian joy resides solely in all that God is for us in Christ. Your joy must not come from your circumstances. Because think about it. If your joy comes from your circumstances, your joy and your happiness will do this constantly up and down and up and down. But when our joy 
is found in all that Christ is for us, in all that Christ has done for us. Our joy is a steady, maintaining thing, and we can endure all the trials and struggles of life. And Isaiah says, listen, the Holy One of God is the source of our rejoicing and our glory. He says also in Isaiah 41.20, the Holy One of God is our Creator. He created everything. Look around us. The Bible says over and over again in John 1 and other places, uh, Genesis 1 and Revelation and Hebrews 1 talks about how He is the Creator of all things. Isaiah 43 and verse 3 says, The Holy One of God is our Savior. We talk about Christmas time. What do we talk about? You shall give Him the name Jesus. For he shall save his people from their sin. Jesus, the Holy One of God, saved us from the wrath of God against us for the sin that we have committed. Jesus, the Holy One of God, saved us from the death, the eternal separation that sinning brings. He saved us from the steady, unwavering, moral decay that sin causes. He's our Savior. Isaiah 48, 17, the Holy One of God is the one who teaches us and leads us. I love the fact that both in Mark and in John, the idea of Jesus being the shepherd, the one who leads and guides and teaches and feeds his sheep comes out again and again. The Holy One of God, that's Jesus Christ, is the one who shepherds his people. He teaches us and he feeds us. The Holy One of of God speaks of the fact that He is separated from all else and separated to God. The idea of holiness there means that He is morally pure, undefiled, upright. He's worthy of being called God. He's worthy of God. Agios is the word for the Holy One. The One who is holy, that's God Himself. The One who made us by the virtue of the righteousness of Christ, which is applied to us in response to faith, He made us holy. I know people struggle with this, but listen, if you're sitting here this morning and you know Jesus as your Savior, there's a term that's applied to you. It's the word saint. People struggle with that because it has some connotations to them. But the word saint literally means the one who has been made holy, the one who is called to be holy. And the Holy One of God, because of all that He accomplished for us, creating us and redeeming us and saving us and shepherding us and so on, is making us holy. And Mark is explaining through the words that the demon says, you are the Holy One of God. He's explaining the Savior to us in a really rich way. So the gospel is the good news about Jesus Christ, the Holy One of God. He came to preach the gospel, to suffer and to die. And He also came to make us holy and beloved in the sight of God. To make us worthy of being accepted and approved of by God. Isn't that incredible? You know the book of Ephesians chapter 1? You know what it says about us? We are accepted, accepted in the beloved. Meaning what? Meaning that in Christ... We have been made holy. We are much loved by the Father because we are in Christ who is the Holy One. He comes to bring us into that position whereby the Father in Heaven delights in us as His dear children. You know what? That's great news. The Gospel of God is about the Holy One of God. The Gospel of God is the fact that Jesus is the Holy One of God. Thirdly, the gospel is the good news of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the king. You take your Bible, look over at Mark 10 and verse 47. It's a story about blind Bartimaeus. 
And blind Bartimaeus heard that it was Jesus, the Nazarene, who began, who was passing by, and he began to cry out something very special. I'll let you find it. In Mark 10, 47, it says, When he, blind Bartimaeus, heard that it was Jesus, the Nazarene, he began to cry out and say, Jesus, Son of David, have mercy on me. If you flip over your page, a couple pages to Mark 12 and verse 35, you'll see this. Mark 12, 35, and Jesus began to say, as he taught in the temple, how is it that the scribes say that this Christ is the son of David? And Jesus is giving to himself that term, the son of David. Bartimaeus calls him, calls him as a title, Jesus, son of David. Twice in Mark's gospel, there's very clear reference to Jesus as the promised king, the son of David, David's earthly ancestor and father. If you go back to the Old Testament, the book of 1 Chronicles in chapter 17, David there has finished all his wars. He has established peace. There's, um, he's doing really well spiritually and politically as a monarch in Israel. And he decides that what he wants to do out of love for God is to build God a temple, a house. And he goes and says to, to the seer, I think his name is Gad, he says, listen, I want to build God a house. He's been dragged around in this tent all through the wilderness for all these years. I want to build him a majestic house fitting for the name of our God. And the seer goes, go ahead, do whatever's in your heart. I actually think it was Nathan now, I think about it. And, and God comes to him in the middle of the night and he says, stop David. He's not to do that for me. And instead, God makes David an incredible promise. He says, listen, you desire to build a house for the dwelling of my place, my name. But instead, I will build you a house. And what it means is never, ever will there be a, there cease to be a king sitting on the throne of David. Unfortunately, the people of Israel, in their rebellious disobedience to God's laws, resulted in their being kicked out of the land and sent off to Babylon. And the kingship was taken away for a time. And from that point to this, by my best research, I can't find anywhere from the history of Israel, from the last king, which I believe was Jeconiah, there's never been another king sitting on David's throne. But when Jesus Christ walks on the earth... They recognize this is the son of David. Doesn't this mean that he's a descendant of David? It means so much more than that. It means he is the promised king. There is a king coming to sit on the throne. And they were so excited to see him when they say, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. The son of David is also mixed. I can't remember the wording totally. Actually, let's go there. Mark chapter 10, I think it is. Nope, Mark 11. There it is. Mark 11, verse 9, it says this. Those who went in front and those who followed, Jesus on the donkey and he's coming into the city of Jerusalem. They're shouting, Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. You see what they're saying? They're saying, listen, this is the one. He's going to reestablish the kingship for Israel. And instead, Jesus goes to a cross and he suffers and dies for his people. Jesus brought with him the promise of God's keeping his promises. He also brought with him the promise of a reunited kingdom for Israel. He brought with them the established hope that God does keep his promises to Israel. Mark also uses the term the king in the 15th chapter a whole bunch of different ways. Sorry, a bunch of different times in two different ways. Four times, 
verse 2, verse 9, verse 12, 18, and 26. Sorry, five times he's called the king of the Jews. And then in verse 32, they call him Christ, the king of Israel. It's a term, interestingly enough, that Jesus never used of himself. And I think I know why. I was trying to struggle. Why wouldn't Jesus call himself the king of the Jews or the king of Israel? And the answer is, it's far too small of a term. Who is Jesus? He is not just the king of Israel or the king of the Jews. He's the king of kings and the Lord of lords. His kingship, his kingdom and reign goes so much further. Remember the story? Pilate brings him in and they says, are you indeed a king? And Jesus answers in John 19, 36, that his kingdom is not of this world. It's so much greater than just the king of the Jews and the king of Israel. He is the king of kings and Lord of lords. Listen, the gospel is the good news about Jesus Christ, the son of David, our king, who came first to suffer and die as our redeemer. He came to make us Listen, kings and priests to our God. That's amazing. He came, he's coming again, sorry, to rule and reign as king of kings and lord of lords. The gospel is the good news about Christ Jesus, the king. And the last one I want to look at is this. The last title is this. He is, it's the gospel of Jesus Christ, the son of man. Now that's a very interesting title. It comes up a number of times and has a whole bunch of connections to it. It's really cool. We'll look at them as we go through the gospel itself bit by bit. But I want to just sort of do a quick overview of them right now. The term, the Son of Man, my best study, comes back to Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 to 14. In Daniel 7, 13 and 14, Daniel has a vision and he sees one like the ancient days who is seated on his throne. And then he sees one coming like the Son of Man on the clouds of heaven. And he comes to the ancient days and this one, the Son of Man, is given a dominion. He's given glory. He's given a kingdom so that all the people's nations and languages might come and serve him. His kingdom and his dominion, according to Daniel 7, is an everlasting kingdom and dominion. It never ends. You remember the story in Daniel, I think it's Daniel 2, and the king has a dream in the middle of the night. He has a great big statue raised up, right? Like the head of gold, chest and arms of silver, belly of bronze, legs of iron, feet and ankles of iron and clay mixed together. And what happens at the end of that story, the end of the vision? A stone not cut out with hands comes down and it hits the bottom of that, that statue and knocks it over. And that stone becomes a great big stone that eventually fills the whole earth. And what it is is a beautiful picture of Jesus Christ, the cornerstone of God's building. His, his kingdom eventually will conquer and rule the whole earth. Meaning what? Meaning that the people of Jesus Christ, those who believe in Christ, who are now part of the church, will one day become part of the kingdom. This is a long, complex topic. I don't want to go too far into it. We are part of that kingdom. Okay, but we are part of Christ's rule and reign over this earth. So Daniel 7 describes him as one like the Son of Man. And when Jesus came, he used the term again to speak of himself. Jesus came as that Son of Man, God who took on flesh and blood as fully God and yet fully man. But there's something else that we greatly overlook. One of the attacks that comes against the church, against Jesus Christ, is that his deity is constantly under attack. So what do we do? 
We're typical evangelical Christians. We want to defend our Savior because he needs defending, right? And so what we do is we swing the pendulum all the way the other way, and we defend at great length the deity of our Lord Jesus Christ. We should. But what we should not do is forget that he is also man. He is flesh and blood. The Bible makes it very clear. If you read through the Gospels, he became tired. He became hungry. He felt pain. He needed companionship. And here's the one that just blows me away. You see it in Mark 1 and verse 35. After a great long day, he gets up very early the next morning and he goes off to a secluded place to pray. And you think, well, yeah, but I mean, you know, Jesus, right? He's the son of God. He doesn't need to pray. Oh, doesn't he? The Gospels make it so clear that Jesus needed to spend time with his father in prayer to seek his father's face. Jesus, we've got to remember this, is fully God. Absolutely amen. We'll never let go of that. But he's also fully man. And we need not, we, we must not forget the fact of his dual nature. And we mustn't overload one as a push back against the heretics who say he's not God, we must keep them in balance. He is the Son of God and he's also the Son of Man. He is fully God and fully man. Jesus prayed not just as an example for us to teach us to pray. He prayed because he himself, being man, needed to pray. He needed to seek his Father's face to enjoy that fellowship with his Father. Well, Jesus makes a whole bunch of different statements about the Son of Man. I'll read through them quickly. Um, In 2 and verse 10, the Bible says that Jesus, the Son of Man, has authority on earth to forgive sin. And it's a direct claim to being God. It's also a beautiful display of the dual nature of Christ. Son of Man, that's his manhood. Forgiving sins, that's his deity. And they're working together. That's the wrong way to say it. They don't work together. They are together, right? And you can't divorce them. It's one of those great mind-bending biblical truths about the dual nature of Christ. It's a beautiful display, though, of the dual nature of Christ forgiving sin. In 2 and 28, the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. Meaning what? His Lordship knows no limits or bounds. He's Lord over all of it. Mark 10, 45, we were singing that this morning. The Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. A lot of people take that one little verse, Mark 10, 45, and use it as kind of a key to unpack the whole gospel, the whole book. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the one who created and spoke everything into existence, the brightness of the Father's glory. You know what it says about him? He did not come to be served. Of all the men in the face of the the earth, in all of the history of existence, of any man that should have been served by us immediately, he says, I didn't come for that reason. In fact, he says, I didn't just not come to be served. I came to serve and I came to give my life as a ransom for many. I think it's also very striking in the book of Mark that he makes son of man statements, three of them with three parts repeated. Listen, Mark 8, 31 And Jesus says, it says, He began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. So He's killed and rise again. Mark 9.31, He was teaching His disciples, telling them, the Son of Man is to be delivered into the hands of men. They will kill Him and when He has been killed, He will rise again three days later. Mark 10.33 and 34, listen, 
Behold, we are going up to Jerusalem and the Son of Man will be delivered to the chief priests, the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and hand him over to the Gentiles. They will mock him and spit on him and scourge him, kill him, and three days later he will rise again. Three times, I think that's so significant, three times in the gospel he predicts both his death as a killing and his resurrection. And what happened? They happened for real. They went to Jerusalem. He was killed, and three days later, he rose again. He kept all those promises. But it's neat how he uses the term, the Son of Man, predicting in his humanity, he would know the suffering of a servant to go to the cross to pay the penalty for our sin. Not only that, something else even very significant too, in Mark 8.38 and Mark 14.62, Jesus twice predicts that they... And we will see the Son of Man coming on clouds in power and great glory. It's talking about His coming again. And God who kept His promises, all those promises for the first one, His first coming is going to keep the promises for the second coming. Jesus is coming again soon. Do you believe that? If anything ought to give us hope and ought to give us joy when we see the world around us just going, pardon the term, hell in a handbasket, just coming apart the seams, The reality that Jesus is coming again gives us tremendous hope. All those things he predicted about himself, they came true exactly the way he predicted them. And he's going to come again. Listen, the gospel of Jesus Christ is the good news about the Son of Man. It's also the good news of the Son of Man who came to serve and not be served. The Son of Man who came to suffer, to be mocked, to be condemned, and to be killed. The Son of Man who came to rise again from the dead, giving us the promise and the reassurance that we too will be raised again. You realize that? The hope that we have if we die before the Lord Jesus returns, the hope of our resurrection is the very fact that Jesus himself rose again. He promised it three times and it happened exactly the way he promised. The Son of Man who came so that we can be forgiven of sins. We sit here in this room this morning, resting in the finished work of Christ. We take the bread and the wine and we remember Jesus. We enjoy the fact that he came fully man. That piece of bread, when you pick that up in your hand, you hold that in your hands, you should just kind of feel the texture of that bread. You say, why? It's just bread. You're right. It is just bread. But you know what it reminds me of? It reminds me that he took on flesh and blood. He took on real human flesh that felt pain, that felt and understood what it was to be torn and cut and pierced with the nails. The Son of Man who came so that we can be forgiven of sins. The Son of Man who came so that we might have the perfect example of what it means to love each other and serve each other. He came once to suffer. He came riding on a donkey. He came in the lowliest and the meanest of ways as a baby born in a manger in the backwoods country, a place called Bethlehem and Nazareth later. He came like that, the Son of Man. The gospel is about the Son of Man. The gospel is the good news that Jesus Christ is the Son of Man. He's the Son of Man, the Son of God. He is the Son of David, and He is the Holy One of God. The Bible gives other other terms as well. He talks about Rabboni, my teacher, my great one, the shepherd. He talks about other titles too. We won't look at them. One of the neatest things about the book of Mark, as I read through again and again, I noticed the term Son of God is used twice. Do you know where? 
Very beginning, guess where else? Very end. It's the coolest thing. You think Mark's got literary masterpiece to it? Yeah, it does. He starts off and says, this is the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. You know how he finishes up? The centurion looks up at him dying on a cross. And he says, truly this, he says was, we'll say this is the Son of God. And he bookends the gospel like that. The gospel is all about the, the servant, the suffering servant of God. He describes him as the Son of God, the one who suffered and died for us. Well, the answer is, what must we do in response to a gospel like this? Take your eye and just look down at verses 14 and 15 of Mark 1. We're almost done. Mark 1, verses 14 and 15 gives us the great answer of how we respond to this. Actually, verses 14 to 17. It says, now after John had been taken into custody, Jesus came into Galilee preaching the gospel of God, preaching the good news about himself. And he said, the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. And he was going along by the Sea of Galilee. He saw Simon Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea for they were fishermen. And he said, follow me and I will make you become fishers of men. What is the response to the gospel? What's our response? What must it be? Number one, we must deal with sin. He says repent. You know, Mark describes how we deal with sin so comprehensively. In Mark 1 verse 5, we must confess our sin. In Mark 1 verse 15, we must repent of sin. In 2 and verse 5, we must have faith in God in order to be forgiven. And in 2 and verse 7, we must recognize that it is God alone who can forgive sin and totally remove it. Listen, Christian. We come this morning to break the bread and and take the little cup of juice and remember Jesus for what he has done. If you take that bread and that juice in your hand and you know the sin in your life that has not been dealt with, the Bible makes it clear that you are eating and drinking judgment on yourself. You mustn't do that. You say, what do I do? Number one, confess it. You can right now in your heart before God, you can confess that sin. Tell him what you have done. You can repent of that sin, turn your back on it, and refuse to have anything more to do with it, and know that you are forgiven. The second thing we need to do is this. We must deal with our sin, number one. Number two, we must believe the message of gospel. Believe what Christ says. Take Him at His word. Listen to all that the Mark's gospel teaches about what Christ, who He is, sorry, first of all, and what He has done to set us free, to redeem us, and save us, and make us into a people of God. To follow Him. And that's the third thing we must do. We must repent, number one. We must believe, number two. Number three, we must follow Him. And that takes a whole lot more of understanding. We'll go through that as we go through the book of Mark. What it means to follow Christ is far more demanded of us than we think in this book. That's who Jesus is. This this is the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the Son of Man, the Son of David, and the Holy One of Israel. What an amazing Savior we have this morning, yeah? As you're sitting here thinking about this and thinking about the bread and the wine, I just want to encourage you, we'll take some time, a few minutes just in absolute silence, for you to think through where you stand before God. What is your position before God? How are you living in relation to Him? It's very easy to make a quick commitment that, yeah, I'm living for Christ. But you know in your heart of hearts that your desires and motives are mostly driven by selfish means. I want what I want. And I want it now. 
I want to encourage you with all my heart. I'm going to take a few minutes just to be totally quiet. To do business with God. Think about who Jesus is. Think about what He did to set you free from sin and from death. And cry out to God for forgiveness. And I'll come in a minute we'll give thanks and we'll take the elements together. Mark 14, we read these words, beginning in verse 17. When it was evening, he came with the twelve. And as they were reclining at the table and eating, Jesus said, Truly I say to you, the one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. They began to be grieved and to say to him one by one, Surely not I. And he said to them, It is one of the twelve, one who dips with me in the bowl. For the Son of Man is to go just as it is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been good for that man if he had not been born. And while they were eating, he took some bread, and after a blessing, he broke it and gave it to them and said, Take it, this is my body. And when he had taken a cup and given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank from it. And he said to them, This is my blood of the covenant which is poured out for many. Truly I say to you, I will never again drink of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. He took some bread, and after a blessing, he broke it and gave it to them and said, Take it, this is my body. Loving Father, we come before you this morning and we give you thanks indeed for the Lord Jesus Christ. And Father, we've been considering something of the titles that Mark has given to the Savior. And Father, we give you thanks that He indeed is your Son, your beloved Son, the one in whom you delight. And Father, we give you thanks indeed that He is the King, not just of Israel, not just of the Jews, Father, but the King of kings and Lord of lords. And Father, we give you thanks that He is indeed the Holy One of God, the Holy One of Israel, the one who created us and redeemed us and saved us and chose us and teaches us and leads us. Father, we thank you for our good shepherd who gave his life for the sheep. And Father, we thank you too that He indeed is the Son of Man, truly God and truly man. Father, we thank you so much that he was willing to give up his life to be killed. But Father, we rejoice that he rose again the third day. And Father, we give you thanks that he makes a call upon our lives to repent and believe the message of the gospel. Believe him and follow him. And Father, it is in a great and a sweet memory of him that we take the bread this morning. And holding that piece of bread, common bread in our hands, we are reminded that He took on real flesh and blood. We are reminded, Father, that when the scourge was laid into His backs and the nails were driven through His wrists and His ankles, and Father, the spear that pierced His side, it caused real bleeding and real pain. And Father, we thank You that it is with shed blood that we are washed clean. 
Father, we thank You for His body which was given for us. And Father, although there were no bones broken in His body, Father, we give You thanks that He indeed was broken. Broken in His spirit and broken in His heart. And Father, we could not remember and understand fully the meaning of those words that He cried from the cross. My God, my God, why have You forsaken me? Father, we rejoice this morning that He was cut off from a time, for a time, that we might be forever reconciled to You. And we give You thanks, O God, this morning for this bread on the table. And Father, we take it and we pass it from one to the other and we remember our Savior. And we rejoice, O God, that we are part of the body of Christ. And we give thanks in His name. Amen. Take it, this is my body, remembrance of Him. Let's remember the Lord together, shall we? Father in heaven, again we give you thanks for this little cup of juice that reminds us that His blood was shed for us. It reminds us that without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. And Father, we thank You for the fact that His blood has been shed. And never again, O God, will there be required a sacrifice to wash us clean. Father, we thank You for the sacrifice that was once for all. And we give You thanks in Jesus' name. Amen. In the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let's remember together. <coughs> 